Did you guys see the like fan cut of the six minutes of silent staring in the first episodes one and two? No. There was, is, there, is there really? I think it's on it's one of like maybe welcome to twinpeaks.com, that website. They had something where someone in the first two hours, what we're talking about, episodes one and two, there were six minutes of silent staring and someone cut it all together and it was pretty hilarious. So, <laughs> so this is the part of the podcast where we do that. Yeah. I'm now watching the super cut. <laughs> This is fucking great. It's amazing, yeah. Okay, we're back for episode two of Wrapped in Podcast. We thought episode one was going to cover episodes one and two of Twin Peaks, The Return, the third season, but we had so much to talk about that we needed to split it up into a separate episode for you, our listeners, the real Americans. So here we are. I'm back with T. Kyle King, Jeff Fallis, and Ken Walzak. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Excellent. Good. I wanted to announce my presence with a spirited rendition of Marisy Dodes. But- Great. So in episode two, we jump from the opening sequence into what is sort of the most over-the-top kind of soap opera crime drama scene that we've seen in the show so far. Bill Hastings is in a cell and his wife comes to visit him. There's a confrontation. Bill insists that what happened in Ruth's apartment was in a dream. Phyllis says that she's known about the affair all along. Then Bill turns it on her and says he knows that she's been seeing George. Bill... She she basically walks away and tells him he's going to spend life in prison. Phyllis is pleased about this. And Bill starts, you know, saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. George, the lawyer, comes to the office and Phyllis tells George that Bill knows about them. And then uh, Bill continues to freak out in his cell. Just one of those normal everyday scenes that you get in your average television show. Two, scene, two cells down from Bill Hastings is what appears to be kind of a vagrant with bugged out eyes and completely blackened out skin and clothing, motionless, sits, staring, his body evaporates, and then his head kind of floats up into the air. So that was something that was uh, normal and typical. <laughs> Jeff, what did you think about that scene? Um, maybe the last part in particular. Yeah, that was, I mean, maybe in episodes one and two, besides the appearance of the thing in the glass box, just maybe the one of the moments that I guess freaked me out. It also kind of made me laugh, but the the guy, he kind of reminded me of uh, the the man behind the Winkies Diner in uh, Mulholland Drive. You know, he seemed sort of Definitely. blackened, you know, and just kind of creeped out like that. Um, but then just at his head, you know, kind of floated away. There, there were one of the really interesting things for me in episodes one and two were it almost seems like this sort of... <laughs> Korean synthesis of all of David Lynch's work. And this is one of the moments that like reminded me of like his early short films and like a racer head, these things that almost seem more kind of handmade, you know, or almost like his, what I know of his kind of photography or paintings. There was just the way the head kind of floated away was this kind of very almost flat, like two dimensional, you know, kind of effect, like kind of a crude effect, um, but still really effective. And I have no idea what to make of it. If it's, you know, a ghost or someone, you know, like watching him, you know, some Dodge Lodge denizen. I have no idea at all, but it was an amazing kind of moment. Um, and I guess in the scene before that, I was at first, you know, wasn't quite sure what to make of Phyllis. She seemed genuinely concerned, but you called it kind of that soap opera moment, but it was a very 
extreme, you know, kind of Lynch thing where at first they seemed fairly concerned and he was genuinely, you know, reaching out to his wife, saying how much trouble he was in, talking about the dream. And then she turned on him and then he turned on her and it just became so vicious between them so quickly. So, yeah. And I wondered, especially what happens to Phyllis in the next scene, you know, if you guys had any thoughts on, you know, what if Phyllis was perhaps, I don't know, in league with Bad Cooper in some way, if she was setting him up or what the relationship between the Hastings is and Bad Cooper was. Did you guys have any any thoughts or speculations? Well, I think Bad Cooper is the possibly third person she's having an affair with right. that, yeah. uh, that Bill references in the confrontation. Yeah, that that was how I read that and and you know you get she comes home and then uh you know Cooper tells her she did well. She's she's followed human nature perfectly and he's wearing gloves and then he shoots her with George's gun. I mean, he's clearly setting this whole thing up to make it look like it it happened. I mean, the implication I took from that was uh, maybe Matthew Lillard's character really did have a dream and and Cooper staged the whole thing. Evil Cooper was the one who actually did the decapitation. I don't know about any of that, but certainly he appears to be uh, uh, certainly up to no good. Uh, as far as the guy in the jail cell just disappearing and floating away, that that's the one thing that didn't didn't add up with any other thing to me at all. The best I could do was that you know his face is floating away, and we later see Laura taking her face off. We see the the light coming out of that, uh, but how that ties together, uh, you got me. Right. I mean, I I got the sense that he was a symbol of something. Listening to or feeding off of Bill's fear. Yeah. Sure, because uh, he's definitely very scared, uh, very concerned about what's happening to him, which you can barely understand. Ken, do you have any thoughts on the scene before we move on to the Hastings residence? Nothing of substance. Okay, so we go quickly from this scene to the Hastings residence, where Phyllis arrives and sees Bad Coop standing there waiting for her. She says, "What are you doing here?" Not in a like, "Who in the hell are you?" But she recognizes him. She knows him. And Coop says, you did good. You follow human nature perfectly. Pretty flat affect, but I think there was a little bit more inflection here than, than we've seen from him speaking before at the deliverance house. Uh, he holds up a gun and says that it's George, and he shoots her as she starts to turn away. Now, I thought this was really interesting because it seems, and I'm interested in what you guys think, clearly her head is turned away from Coop and the gun when he fires. Did you guys see the same thing in this scene? It was like a weird glitch or like, you know, like a digital effect. And yeah, it, I, I wasn't sure the first time I noticed something weird and then I kind of slowed it down the second time I watched it. And yeah, there's some weird thing when he shoots her. Right. You know. Right. What, I, what you see is like without a glitch, her hat, she turns and is starting to run away from him. He holds up the gun and fires. And then the glitch happens, which shows a kind of like flat after the muzzle shot, after the gun fires. There's like a sort of a muzzle shot. So there's like a weird splash of red coming out of the front of her head. And she falls. And after that, Coop tosses the gun. And then we have a shot of her head, which looks like an entry wound to her right eye, which, you know, is physically impossible unless bad Coop has got access to the same magic bullet used to kill JFK. I can't really make sense of it. Do you guys have any thoughts on that particular issue of physics? I just think it's a, a Black Lodge evil doppel bullet, and it can go anywhere it wants to. Clearly, there's some significance to the taking the eye out, yeah. right? Because that's what happened to Ruth, uh, and that's what we'll see happen to Daria. And Nadine. Yes. 
And happened to yes. Nadine, that's right. Anybody have any other thoughts on, on this scene? Yeah, and I'm kind of fascinated to see how all these things are going to connect and what Hastings' secretary knows and how exactly, you know, it does seem like on some level Phyllis and Hastings were, Phyllis seems more in league with Bob, whereas Hastings, Matthew Lillard's character was perhaps used by Bob, you know, kind of in, in some way that he might not understand as much. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, it looks like they're trying to use Bill as some kind of patsy. Yeah. Bad Coop has set him up as part of his plan to keep himself out of the Black Lodge. But unlike, as say, in the case of Dougie, it's just not really clear what that plan is and how, or at least how it ties into Bill Hastings' arrest and the murder of Ruth. Uh, but, you know, maybe with that decapitation, there's even a connection to what happens in New York, basically, the fact that. that entity appeared to have a some sort of attached non-original head and now we move to las vegas where we see duncan todd who's apparently a, a casino manager or something who gives his underling roger through asks him to come in some cash and says tell her she has the job and then roger asks mr todd why do you let him do these things and todd replies you better hope you never get involved with somebody like him Never have someone like him in your life. What do you guys? What do you guys think about the scene? The character of Duncan Todd, who this mysterious, terrible person that's making t- Duncan Todd do things. Yeah. Well, the the obvious, you know, is this is bad coop, you know, uh, in, in some way is the person doing all these things. Um, I also like. Do you know what's this actor's name? The guy who plays Duncan Todd. Do you know Jr. Well, I could I couldn't help thinking back of you know his role again in Mulholland Drive. You know where he's the one at Winkies who's. I think to like a psychologist telling his dream and then sees the face of the man, you know, behind uh, the, the kind of dumpster back there. But I think I remember him saying, I hope I never see that face again outside of a dream. And, you know, I, you better hope you never get involved with someone like him, never have someone in your life. Like those, the sentiment and idea seems so similar played by the same actor. That's what I kind of thought of. And I also thought there might be some chance that, you know, looking ahead to episodes three and four, that since this takes place in Las Vegas in a casino, it might have something to do with Dougie. Um, although who would be hired to kind of do the job? I'm not sure. It could be Tracy back in New York tied in the glass box, but there might also be some connection to the attempted assassination of Dougie. Yeah, I think we alluded to it earlier, but I don't know if we really discussed. Did we talk about uh, whether the him here, the you better hope you're never associated with someone like him person, is the mysterious billionaire who owns the room with the glass box. Obviously, that would preclude him paying Tracy to infiltrate the room with the glass box, but I just thought it was a possible term. Could be. Yeah. It could be that the billionaire owner did hire want Tracy to do it, and Tracy just didn't know she was getting into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that can that can add up. I mean, I understand the point that he's not going to infiltrate his, his own operation, but if he's paying these guys to just sit there and stare at a, bla- at a glass box and nothing is happening and you've got all these uh all these cards with with no images on them maybe he needs to you know push the process along a little bit but he can't very well tell the guy he's hired hey i'm sending somebody in there to distract you uh so that uh, something will show up that will murder both of you i mean I, I don't think that's something you can tell a new employee who's just getting uh college credit as an intern so uh i can i can see the billionaire being behind it sure well, like any good billionaire he's not paying his employees <laughs> He's paying them a college credit. 
college credit and under this theory, illicit yeah. sex, I guess. And free coffee. I mean, come on. This is you, you had worse college jobs than that. Don't lie to me. That's, that's quite a Lynchian <laughs> cocktail. Sex, coffee and free college yeah. credit. All right. So from Vegas, we see a train crossing nearby the train crossing. Bad Coop character you come to know is Ray and Daria from Beulah's Place. They're at a diner and they're with Jack who eats a lot. Here we have sort of Bad Coop with his flunkies on whatever mission he's engaged in. The critical sort of question here is, who is Hastings' secretary and what information does she have? Uh, Kyle, do you have a theory about that? Well, uh, we hear him later talking to Daria. Uh, Cooper, I mean, talking to, to Daria and asking whether Ray had provided any coordinates. Uh, and so it sounds like that may be the information that he's getting. I mean, a lot of the point of this scene, I think, is to give us a little bit of insight into the character of, of Doppel Cooper that he's saying, you know, he doesn't need anything. He just wants this. And, and he's not worried about anything. And people need to mind their own business. And there's, there's you know, this very authoritative, very calm, but nevertheless firm, um, evil guy behind all this. And so I think it's, it's good from a characterization standpoint. As far as who Hastings' secretary is, no, I don't have a theory as to who Hastings' secretary is. I'll say something about Bad Cooper in this scene. There's a lot of uh, talk about him being threatening or calm and imposing or any number of things. And I, I get that the dialogue is supposed to make him seem those things. But to me, there's a weird disconnect between the flat affect delivery that we've been talking about and his ability to seem threatening. Like, it came off really, really flat to me when he said, I don't want, uh, need things, I only want them, and and the like. It just I understood those were supposed to be threats, but they didn't sound threatening. It's a weird portrayal of evil. Yeah, I kind of thought about that, too, and you almost get this, uh, you know, sense of, uh, you know, the he wants to you know, avoid going back into the Black Lodge. But you're right, there does seem like this kind of almost like he's indulged in the pleasures of being evil too much and he's become almost soul sick and like emptied out, you know, and that, um, yeah, like this, this sort of uh, e- e- evil past its its due date almost, you know, and, and, and he just seems like, yeah, like uh, lacking the kind of gleeful demonic uh sense of Bob, you know, in, in Twin Peaks, you know, eager to play or whatever. So, yeah. After 25 years of indulgence, yeah, it just seems like he's, it's flat, flat, flat effect, as you said. Playful sense of Bob raises another point, too, which is, who is this being that Bob is currently inhabiting? We understand that he's Coop's doppelganger, but there's going to be at least three forms of Coop out there in the world. And it seems very different from Bob inhabiting the body of Leland Palmer, right? Like, Leland Palmer was there at the same time as Bob, as Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me makes really clear. I don't think anybody is there in this body at the same time as Bob. This this uh, bad coop is just like a shell for Bob to inhabit uh, on the earthly plane, which is a very different kind of a dynamic, and uh, I guess less interesting. Well, no, it, you're right. It's it's a different dynamic. And, and Lynch, uh, if you go back, uh, since JR convinced me to go order it and, you know, give them back their money and in the essential wrapped in plastic, they, they go back through a, a lot of that kind of thing. And Lynch himself 
uh, has never said that Bob possessed Cooper. The way he's described that final scene uh, of the finale of season two is that he was with right. Bob, that they were in league with one another. And of course, right before they escape, we actually see the, the evil Cooper who gets out into the world there laughing with Bob before he takes off after uh, after the Cooper who remains trapped in, in the Black Lodge. So, you know, the implication is more that... Uh, the doubling that we talked about last week has has literally occurred here, uh, which raises some interesting possibilities about what the glass box is about. I mean, we hear Cooper told that he can't go out unless the other Cooper goes back in. You know, they've got to tag off. So what does that mean for people whose good and evil selves are divided and the good one is trapped in the lodge and the evil one is out there wreaking havoc and then the evil one is killed in the real world? How do they then get back? They can't tag off. And is the glass box, which is what Cooper lands on when he falls initially, is that an effort to try and get people out of the lodge through through another door when they can't go in and out by the normal means? Or an effort to put people into it. That That's the other possibility, sure. And, and that also, incidentally, may help explain what Laura later says to Cooper when he asks her if she's dead. Uh, and, and she says, I'm dead, yet I live. You know, there may have been more than one Laura. Uh, that may explain why she went so back and forth, so hot and cold between this, you know, loving, caring uh, meals on wheels provider on the one hand and, and this, you know, coke fiend who worked at One-Eyed Jacks on the other. It may explain why she's jumping off of James Hurley's motorcycle at the corner of Sparkwood and 21 and running off into the woods if she's got to go back into the Black Lodge the way we now see evil Cooper doing. Uh, if that's the case, then I'm furious. If, if that's actually what Lynch is trying to do here, then that's that's a terrible retcon, and I'm very angry. Because that takes all the complexity out of the fire walk with me portrayal, right? Like, two Loras um, gets rid of all the wonderful, like, expressiveness of that Cheryl Lee performance and all the conflicts that that poor, suffering um, girl was going through. Like, that would, that would just be so cheap and awful. Plus, it would be three Loras, because there's also Maddie. But, yeah. ugh, that would be bad. Are you saying that Maddie is the Dougie? Exactly, yes. Yeah, I kind of got the sense that, and I think I, I also read The Essential Wrapped in Plastic Book and ordered it since you guys mentioned it in the first podcast. And a lot of, is it named John Thorne? Like he he writes a lot about this in the kind of three long essays in the book. But I mean, I, I got the sense that, that before you go in the lodge, and I don't think this would be, you know, what you were talking about. You, you know, your good and evil selves coexist, but then once you go into the lodge, the danger is that they they split, you know, and I guess depending on fear, love, your reaction there, there's the possibility that that normal, I guess, synthesis of them that exists in sort of a normal human, there's the possibility for them to kind of be, you know, split apart. And I, yeah, and I, I think that there is a, a degree of difference between what was happening with Bob sort of inhabiting Leland versus bad coop which just seems like a different thing a doppelganger from the lodge loose in the world you know when you can inhabit for 25 where you basically seems like have for whatever reason the, the 25 year uh span you know of, of being you can be out in the world so yeah i didn't see it as kind of there are three lauras loose in the world i saw it as i i do i do agree that there might be a sense of based on what laura says some possibility of you know the good laura kind of trapped in the lodge in the same way that the good Dale is. Um, but yeah, I'm not quite sure how that will play out, but it's, I don't know. I, I was always hoping that we would return to these kind of ideas and they seem so important to uh, fire walk with me. Uh, but I'm, I, I was 
I got really excited when we, uh, I think we're about to get there, but when we, we went back to uh, the Red Room and uh, saw some of these things at work. Yeah, well, speaking of the Red Room, we can move from this scene at the diner to Hawk in the Woods with the classic shot of the spotlight going across the branches in the dark in the woods outside of Twin Peaks. Uh, he gets a call from Margaret, and he says that Hawk is on the same page as Margaret's log, and that there's something supposed to be happening tonight. Then Margaret gives the, the line, the stars turn and a time presents itself. Hawk, watch carefully. And then there's this really gentle and another moving moment where Margaret says that she's too weak to go with him, but to stop by. That she has coffee and pie for him, Hawk. And Hawk says, going to have to be after him. I'm almost there now. Margaret says, please let me know what happens. And you know, Hawk says that he will. And says, good night, Margaret. And at that point, Hawk arrives at Glastonbury Grove, and we see here the reversed whooshing sounds, and the red drapes appear in front of Hawk. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty moving and uh, transitional scene, I think, for what's about to happen. Do you guys have any particular takes on the scene? Uh, well, for me, it, this one and the two scenes that follow it. Uh, all really sort of sort of tie together in some cool ways. I mean, you've got uh, obviously the wind through the trees when Hawk is is coming into uh, Glastonbury Grove, uh, and and of course you then see when we go into the, the lodge, you see uh, after Laura is taken up, you see the wind blow the curtains away, and then as we shift back to uh, the evil Cooper, uh, he's pulling up to the motel. Uh, with with storm clouds brewing, and we've got an electrical storm coming on, and and obviously we see electricity in some of the uh, the lodge sequences as as Cooper is seeing the evolved arm. And, and to me, the neat thing about this image here is that as Hawk is moving his one working law enforcement flashlight in the entire David Lynch canon over the trees and, and the red drapes, you know, that's how we leave Hulk is, is the light sort of shines into the camera and he just is washed out behind it. Uh, and then we move on to the next scene where we see Laura take her face off and you see this light shining on the Cooper. And I just, I just thought none of it may mean anything, but in terms of imagery, it was just really cool to see that movement through this and the next couple of scenes. Oh, it's just such classic Twin Peaks for me. I mean, this was always the stuff that I was, I love the most about the show, all the sort of supernatural elements. And I think just, I got, as with the last scene with, you know, the log lady, real poignancy kind of in the delivery and this kind of sense of, you know, farewells, you know, to the character most likely as, as well as, you know, uh, the actress. Um, but yeah, once we got to kind of Glastonbury Grove, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was, I was freaking out. And then all, you know, the scenes have followed in the black lodge in the red room again. I was very excited. So yeah. Love to see Al Strobel uh, reappear because it does seem like a lot of the inhabitants of uh, the Black Lodge or the Red Room, whatever, uh, from the original series, you know, we'll talk about what happens to, to Michael J. Anderson in a bit. But then also, you know, Frank Silva, who played Bob, you know, who died in 1995. Uh, it was I was just I was I was I was really excited once we got to this. This was probably among my favorite sequences in, in the, the first four hours. So, yeah. Ken, do you have a contrary take on the scene? I wish I did. No, I, I agree with that. It was one of my favorite sequences in, uh, in the first four hours. I, I felt all these wonderful pangs of nostalgia once they got to uh, the grove and the red curtains appearing above the 
sort of uh, well uh, structure. And it, it reminded me of the scenes in the original finale where uh, Sheriff Truman is just waiting on this log for, you know, hours and hours or even like a day or two for um, Cooper to return right before he comes back as new bad Coop or whatever he is. And uh, I just, I remember how touching all of that was and uh, it was great to see it all again. And I really like the red room, room sequences that followed with Laura taking her face off. I thought that was a very, very cool effect. And I think there's, there's something about Cheryl Lee, uh, even Cheryl Lee of this age, that seems to really, really inspire Lynch to do cool things. Like that was, that was an extremely cool sequence and an extremely cool use of her. And uh, yeah, I was, I was just very, uh, very into that from the yeah, no, we go straight from the scene into the Black Lodge, uh, where Mike appears, he asks if it's future, is it past, and says someone's here. And then we get to see, you know, Laura, 25 years later, she's walking with reversed footsteps. I try to remember who's walking and speaking uh, with reversed footsteps or speech, because uh, I, I wonder what the significance of it is. Because we usually see Dale not speaking with a reversed voice, whereas here, Laura has got a reversed voice. Right. She says, hello, Agent Cooper, you can go out now. Do you recognize me? You know, we, we talked about this before. He said, asks if she's Laura Palmer, and she says, I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. Cooper asks, she says that Laura Palmer is dead uh, when Laura says that she's Laura Palmer uh, after Dale asks her a second time. And Laura says, I am dead, yet I live. And then she holds up her hand to her face, and this was mentioned before by Kyle. She pulls her face off, and this blinding bright light appears. And she puts her face back on. And Coop asks, when can I go? And Laura goes up and to Cooper and kisses him and whispers something in his ear. Probably not the name of the person that killed her. Right. Then Cooper groans a little bit. Laura stands up and then she starts screaming, uh, really screaming in terror. She's sort of poofed away really fast and up into the air. And Cooper just watches sitting in terror and then rumbling and then the Red drapes lift and they pull up and we see a white horse appearing far away. So I'm glad that we brought up the white horse in our last episode, or not the last episode, but the episode zero, uh, because I don't think that we can say the white horse represents drugging somebody at this point. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. It happens right after Laura is drawn up screaming. It happens right before uh, Daria is killed. So, so yeah, we've, we've definitely got uh, uh, something even more nefarious than, than illegal narcotics. And, and speaking of that, you mentioned Cooper groaning whenever Laura whispers to him. And of course, we've, we've got this obvious recreation of, of Cooper's dream sequence, which in, in its own odd way is is as much linear narrative as, as we see in, in this part of it, in, in this episode. And when Laura whispers to him, you're right, it's something different, but you know he, he flinches at it. And when you think back to the last time she whispered something to him in, the, in those circumstances, what she whispered was that her demon-possessed, child-molesting father brutally murdered her, and that didn't phase him. So whatever she's saying here has got to be something really, really horrible. Uh, and then finally, she, you know, she gets lifted up, and, and her ascension is the opposite of what we saw in Firewalk with Me, right? I mean, we've we've now got her uh, going up not in peace but in pain. So so we've got a lot of things being repeated verbatim, and then we've got a lot of inversion of them that's that's putting a, a new spin on it, which which I just think is cool. 
Oh, I was just going to quote. I can't. I wrote this down on. I was rewatching some of the scenes, uh, the Log Lady intros uh, from I don't know episode one, but the Log Lady does say, "Woe to the ones who behold the pale horse." In one of the episodes of season one. So I think there's, I don't know if, I think Mark Frost also said it has something to do with like a harbinger of death or something like that. Um, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I was, I was happy to see the white horse appear. But who's dying here, right? I mean, I guess it could be Dario, right? Dario's going to die in the next scene. Yeah, and the screams are, are doubled there, right? I mean, I, I thought of Laura immediately when I, when I started, when, when Dario started screaming um, in uh, agony when, Bad Cooper was about to kill her. So I thought that doubling was intentional even before I saw the horse. And it all takes me back to a place of this currency of pain and suffering that we've been talking about in various episodes so far. And we're, we're going to get some actual Carmen Bosia, I think, before uh, too long uh, in this. But um, but yeah, I just it, I, I, I thought that was well handled with uh, Laura's uh, ascension in terror. And I thought that the, the screaming was really really tough to to take and intentionally so and intentionally doubled again in the next sequence and so now we find out what david lynch decided to do when michael j anderson refused to come back to the show uh mike mike michael j anderson played the, the, the man from another place also known as mike's arm and uh i don't know the details of the spat but apparently they didn't offer him enough money to come back to the show Something like that. But then he accused, you know, Lynch of doing all sorts of terrible things on uh, Facebook. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but I, I also, you know, the what does the little man say? When you see me again, I won't be me. Oh, I just love that. I mean, like, you know, and then literally, I mean, just like I said, all those little weird things like that. When you see me again, it won't be me. And then, you know, then the fact that all this, a dream sequence 25 years earlier or, you know, uh, that says it's going to take place 25 years later, it'll be continued. The fact that it literally was with the same actors, it's amazing. So, yeah, just, but all those little things like that, I, and I did take it as, as Lynch being like, all right, well, you're not going to be in it. We're going to recast you as a giant talking tree. I mean, that's, that's so beautiful. Right. With a weird brain sack head. Yeah, which looked kind of like, yeah, like something from a racer head. It, it was great. Yes. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, or exactly. something out of his early short films, or yeah. something out of his paintings. I mean, that that arm tree is like the lynchiest thing that ever lynched, uh, <laughs> and I love it. It's so good. It's so quintessential. All I was going to say was, it, I think it's like the cover of the second Julie Cruz album that Lynch was involved with looked almost exactly like you know uh, the the head of the, the 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 brain tree. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it looks like a bunch of different things, and you've you've nailed a, a couple of them. I mean, it does very much look like something out of Eraserhead. It does, in some respects, look like a tree. Uh, it looked to me, uh, and I know this isn't a reference Lynch is making, but you know, it kind of reminded me of of the nervous system and the brain when John Osterman was reconstituting himself gradually in Watchmen. Uh, but the 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 thing that I got off of the electricity. Uh, the thing that it made me think of was Cooper explaining dreams to Harry and Lucy the morning after his dream when he's talking about, you know, high uh, acetylcholine neurons firing high voltage impulses into the forebrain to produce the pictures that become dreams because we're, we've just seen him reenact in reality or something like it, uh, a dream that he had. And the arm then reminds him of his doppelganger uh, from the end of season two 
which he appears to have, if not forgotten, at least suppressed. I mean, there's no indication that Cooper's aware uh, of evil Cooper being out there before the arm reminds him, which makes sense because otherwise he wouldn't have just been sitting in a waiting room for 25 years. He would have been trying to find a way out to stop his doppelganger. Formerly, after the shot of the horse, Mike says to Coop again, is it future or is it past? And then motions to Dale to follow him. And he takes him into the room where we see the tree. And Mike says, this is the evolution of the arm. Uh, and what's interesting is the tree doesn't speak with voiced language. It only speaks in a whisper. And so it's interesting because he says, "This I sound like this. I sound like this. And it makes sort of a sound, which would be the sound if you were making a sound, which we've heard before in the show but without voicing it. That's pretty elementary, but that was my observation. And then, yeah, the tree reminds Dale of his doppelganger, and it shows the shot of Bad Coop and Bob laughing uh, maniacally, and, you know, basically how Dale was kept in the Black Lodge and how Bob got out. And the tree tells Dale, he must come in before you can go out, which is, you know, kind of the central trope of, of this episode, at least. And then we're back to Buckhorn. What happens first is Jack, who we lost at the diner, is putting the Bad Coop's Mercedes in a storage space. Bad Coop gets two sets of keys from him. You know, as he gets into his car, he asks Jack to come close and does something really weird, massaging his cheeks or jaw with one hand, which kills him. That's pretty upsetting. What did, what did you guys think of the face massage kill move? <laughs> I just I didn't think that actually killed him. I thought he was just sort of doing some weird Lynchian thing and then off screen, you know, pulled out a gun and shot him. I, I, I assumed it was something uh, a lot less subtle than that. Yeah, I had the same uh, impression as, as Kyle did that the killing happened off screen. I tried in second viewing to look back at the jowl massage to see if there was anything to it that could have been fatal. But um, I, yeah, I, I think it's off screen. But I, I can't stop thinking about the mechanics of this operation that Bad Coop is running. How is he paying these people? Why are they loyal to him? It doesn't seem like this is a good gig for anybody. Well, no, it's it's real. It's also really weird that like he would go to some go to Beulah's house and just call upon some two random people to be there to be the people that he totally depends upon and trusts for his you know serious operation. Right? Why would he just pick up these people right. and expect they'd be unwaveringly loyal? Right, or competent, or in any way valuable to him. It's, it's, it's a very strange circle of acquaintances he's built up. But when you think about it, I mean, how good a job did Frank Booth do in, in surrounding himself with good people? I mean, sometimes if you're going to be just a, an embodiment of pure evil in the world, you got to expect that you're going to have a hard time getting competent folks to submit resumes. Yeah, but at least Frank Booth was fun. He, li- he liked a good Roy Orbison song. Yeah, he oh, liked sure. a good hit of Nitrous and A Night on the Town. You know, those those people seem they were deranged, <laughs> but they liked a good time. Um, and it's and it's the same with yeah. like um, the Jacques Renault sort of Leo Johnson posse to me, right? Like those people are disgusting and horrible, but at least I sort of understand their motivations. You know, you get to see Jacques sort of living it up. I get to like it's a privilege. You see Jacques living it up in Fire Walk with me, and you sort of understand like what he's in this for. But uh, but I don't understand what any of these sort of hill country uh, South Dakotans get out of their association. So thunder booms and Coop pulls up to a motel room, uh, and which now becomes the focus of the rest of the scene. 
So my first question is, can, what do we think? Is this place a, a clean place, reasonably priced? <laughs> Far from it. it. It's not, and it seems like it's got windows on, on every possible side. It's like it's its own room stuck off at the end. And, and again, this may be me watching it way too closely, but did anyone else think that when he drives up to the motel and the headlights uh, shine through the lattice work in front of the door that it, it projects the chevron pattern from the floor of the Black Lodge on the wall behind it. I did not notice that, but it's possible. I'm going to rewind my uh, copy of this right now. <laughs> well, while, uh, while he's doing that, just a, a few thoughts on on this scene as as we're going forward. Just a few little. It's a, you know obviously a very disturbing scene in many ways. A very tough scene to watch with uh, some of the stuff that's uh, gone on for some of the reasons that Ken brought up earlier. But I loved the fact that he bugged the phone call and is playing it back on what looks like Cooper's yeah. micro cassette recorder that he used to, uh, to send his messages to Diane. And then when we see him pull out his computer afterward, there are these little uh, sketches of static on the screen. And, and what that put me in mind of, of course, is the beginning of Firewalk With Me, where it's just all a static television screen that's then destroyed as, as Lynch's farewell to television. And, and here he's got the screen. He's got a little bit of static, but not a lot of static. And it's, it's almost like it's saying, OK, we're back on television, but it's showtime and I'm playing by my own rules. So it's not really TV like before. I mean, that was that was what I got off of the, the static on the computer screen. You know, what, what's what's interesting is that Daria lies to Coop and says that she was talking to Jack. The Coop has just killed Jack. Ray calls Daria and says that he's been in federal prison in South Dakota. Asks, you know, what are we going to do about Cooper? And Ray says, I got another call from Jeffries. You have to hit Cooper if he's still around tomorrow night. And so Cooper knows about this. He comes in. He asks Daria who hired her and Ray to kill him. And Daria says she doesn't know. Which is weird because Ray just said, I got another call from Jeffries, which is what Dale just heard on his recording. So I don't know. Do you, do you, I, I couldn't make a lot of sense out of that. What did you guys think? Yeah, that part was really weird to me. And it was even weirder when he hears Ray say, I'm in federal prison. I fucked up real bad. And then he says to Daria, do you really expect me to believe that Ray is in federal prison? And I mean, it was Ray that said it on his recording, not Daria. She's not trying to sell him. Yeah, no, that's true. but. I guess he's just skeptical. Uh, and then Coop says a very sort of Wyndham Earl thing, which is the game begins, and wants to know why they want him dead, how much they're paying. Daria does know that they're supposed to get half a million. Um, and then Coop you know, starts to get very expository and says, tomorrow I'm supposed to get back into the Black Lodge, but I'm not going back there. I've got a plan for this. But, you know, apparently this prison thing with that fucker Ray has really messed things up. And you know, Coop wants to know if Ray ever got that information from Hastings' secretary. Did, did he mention coordinates? Daria has no idea. Ray said got something from her, but doesn't know what it was. And then at this point, Bad Coop shows her a playing card. It's got kind of a large black oval with little wing things at the top. Coop says that's what he wants. I thought that symbol looked like two different things. It kind of looks like the owl ring symbol, but not really. I thought it kind of reminded me of a black dog, right? It's a big black head with little ears at the top. What, what were you? What did you guys think about the playing card? I was completely baffled. I had no idea. <laughs> Just kind of say it. I'm not even going to theorize. I was, yeah, I was completely baffled by it. 
So yeah, I I agree with your uh, your owl ring theory. I I figured the owl, particularly with the you know the idea, of course, of the owls uh, not being what they seem, and and particularly in light of what happens uh, in three and four, where you know of course you think of a playing card and Twin Peaks, you obviously think of of one eyed Jacks, and you know you think about Cooper going to the casino, and then of course later we see the the good Cooper, or at least what's left of him, in a casino, and and seemingly getting some messages from you know from inside the lodge and then later being dropped off at home and an owl flying overhead and his driver being spooked but him apparently you know not not noticing it at all so you've got that whole the owl is not what the owls are not what they seem and you've got him talking to possibly Jeffries but maybe not Jeffries saying you're going to be black back in the black lodge and I'm going to be with Bob and you know of course Bob and the owl certainly were tied together in the original series so uh that was that was kind of what I got off of that was that it was the owl it was an ace of spades playing card, right? Yeah. Okay. I I think Bad Coop would be in the Motorhead. That's all I got to say about that. So. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some definite Lemmy affinity in his look. I think that's fair. I thought of the owl symbol too, uh, and of of the sequence where the owl symbol's on like the lever that opens a door into the cave wall near the end of uh, season two. Oh, yeah. I thought it was interesting too how the card itself that Bad Coop is carrying around is so distressed. Like, it looks like somebody has scraped at it a bunch of times with a toothpick or a key or something. As though he was, like, trying to scrape this uh, owl symbol off of it, which is very odd. It's hard to distress a card that hard without actually tearing it. You know, the other thing, though, about it being an owl symbol is that apparently, and we're not going to talk about it uh, too much, but, you know, in the next episode, we find out that there's this thing, this homunculus or whatever, Dougie, that, that apparently... Bad Coop has created, he has an owl ring. Why or what it's for, we don't really know. And we know that the owl ring represents some symbol of power. So it doesn't look to me that, that Bad Coop, for whatever reason, is after an owl ring, because if he wanted one, he could get it from Dougie, right? Right. Uh, other, other than that, there's not much, I don't know what, what more there is to say. Then, you know, we have, you know, the sort of brutal murder of Daria, who already has been punched a couple times by Bad Coop who then uh, puts a pillow over her head and then shoots her in her temple. Uh, interestingly, there's no eye damage from the shot like we saw in Phyllis. Uh, at that point, he washes his hands and he gets out this electronic device that you were talking about before, Kyle, where uh, he starts to communicate with who appears to be Philip Jeffries and who definitely wants Bad Coop to go back in tomorrow and will be in with Bob again and uh, has noted that Bad Coop met with Major Garden Briggs, and then you know, the voice on the other side doesn't confirm whether or not it's Philip Jeffries or not. Then Bad Coop gets some information about Yankton Federal Prison, which certainly made me think of Deadwood, seeing as Yankton right. figures heavily into the politics of, of that city. Always. And then uh, finally, Coop goes to the room next door, where we meet Jennifer Jason's lead character, Chantal, who's had been jealous of Daria and now has to clean up that mess and Coop and Chantal become intimate at the end of the scene. What did you guys, what did you guys think of Chantal? Well, I just hope Jennifer Jason Lee has more to do because she's such a great actress. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope we see more of Chantal and she plays a bigger role. I was more interested in the conversation before with Philip Jeffries uh, or what is supposedly Philip Jeffries. I mean, you know, I don't know if in terms of the weirdest kind of characters, uh, the most bizarre things happen to you know in all of the entire Twin Peaks. Uh, David Bowie's turn as Philip Jeffries in Fire Walk with Me is right up there with the most bizarre things that yeah. that happened. Um, 
So, I, and I, I got to say, I think the greatest, you know, if, and some people, you know, this week were speculating about this, if they were able to get Catherine Coulson in before she died in 2015, there is the slimmest of chances that David Bowie yeah. filmed the scene as Philip Jeffries, which I think would be kind of the great pop cultural coup of all, you know, that, that, that I think Lynch could do with, with this return of Twin Peaks. I don't, I doubt it happened, but you, there is a chance. And, but this definitely did not seem like the Philip Jeffries that we know from, from Firewalk with me and the missing pieces didn't have the same accent. It had that same kind of flat affect, low voice. That it, it sounds like after, you know, uh, again, Ken, sorry, but at the end of episode four, when we see bad coop in prison, uh, and his voice seems altered when he's talking to Gordon and Albert. Um, and this, watching this s- episode two again, it seemed like the same sort of thing was going on with the voice of whoever was imitating Philip Jeffries for whatever nefarious purpose here. Uh, but yeah, I was I was fascinated with that and the fact that Major Briggs is kind of brought up again. Uh, so yeah, it's I, I was I was really intrigued and and happy to hear from Philip Jeffries again, who I think is on screen for like three and a half or four minutes and fire walk with me. But you know, I mean, maybe it's just because it was David Bowie, but it's still one of the most bizarre sequences in all the twin peaks. And I can't wait to see what they do with that. Yeah. It's an incredible three and a half or four minutes, however long it is in, in fire walk with me and preceded by Cooper doing that thing where he walks back and forth from the um, control room to the hallway enough times that he sees himself on the surveillance footage, which is so trippy and amazing. Right. Um, it's, it's like a, a low tech, uh, tech horror bit. It's so, so good. I do want to say, since I have the footage right in front of me, uh, because modern technology is amazing, I went back and looked at uh, the corpse of poor uh, Daria here, and it does look like one of her eyes is missing, uh, if you pause it at the right point. There's I, I, there's this one, right when you can see the smoke coming off the side of her head, uh, There's I, I don't think the eye has been shot out, but it's filmed in a way where it's black. So you can see uh, one eye partially open and still there, and the other looks as though it's missing. So there's definitely a visual echo of this motif, even if uh, it isn't physically what happened. Okay, so Ken, when you slowed it down and you you did a freeze frame on the eye, did you see the reflection of James Hurley's motorcycle in the eye? I definitely did not. If, if you're really curious and want to pull it up, I'm at minute 35 and 32 seconds on my um, recording on the Showtime app. Yeah, I just pulled it up myself, but I gotta watch this preview of some show about stand-up comedians or something. Yes, it's essential that they deliver you that content. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean, it, it looks that's what we need another prestige TV show about <laughs> stand-up comedians. Right. Well, it looks it looks a lot like that terrible, terrible show Vinyl. I was fortunate enough to avoid that. Yeah, you dodged a bullet there, man. More silent staring portion yes. of the podcast. Yeah, I'm looking at it, Cam. She, she's got both of her eyes. It could be like an eyelid that's closed. I'm just at, at 35 and a half even. Like, I can see the left eye open enough to be clear that there's an eye there. And either the right eye is closed and there's an awful lot of mascara and smoky eye sort of treatment, or uh, it's meant to look like the eye is, is gone, one or the other. But I, I, I see what you mean, but I, I can almost detect uh, an iris in, in the screen that I'm – I mean, I've got a pretty big screen. It's like a – 30, well, that, that might help, too. I, I am on um, now on an iPad, so that, that may actually change it. I'm at, and I'm at 720 uh, instead of 1080, so, so that, that matters, too. So it may be that the yeah, visual I mean, cue look, isn't look, as strong. And there, is, there, is smoke, there is smoke coming up from the exit wound on her right temple, and so that could partially be ex- ex- covering it. But I think, yeah, I, I think she's fine. Did, did, did you get an answer to the curtains question that 
Kyle, yeah, it looks like a lattice pattern. It doesn't look like a chevron to me, unfortunately. It looks like diamonds, not chevrons. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's yeah, it, it's a lattice pattern for the for the yeah, patio. Exactly. Um, I will say though, I mean, the first time I watched it, I had the thought that it was meant to be a, a, an echo of the missing eye thing, and that was on my bigger screen and uh, well, probably still 720 because I don't know if my Directv box can deliver content at 1080. But um, but either way, right? I mean, I, I had the thought in larger format, and then sort of you know had it reconfirmed when I watched on the smaller screen. But it might have just been me telling myself a story that's not really anything good. more. You guys want to say about this scene? be merciful to move on. It's painful. So we're back in the Black Lodge. Uh, the tree is now pretty urgently telling Dale stuff. He says the number 257 time and time again. Bob, Bob, Bob. Go now. Go now. That really seems like a good time to leave. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so Dale and Mike leave and Dale can't get into the next room from the hallway and you hear the kind of scratching sounds like what may have been the giant was playing in the phonograph. Dale goes to an empty room. Uh, he's in a hallway, and then there's a new room. You know, this is very evocative of the finale of season two. Like, you know, running from room to room. Sometimes it's empty, sometimes seeing a new thing, not knowing what's going to be there. Finally, he comes upon Leland Palmer in a chair, and you know, he does not have the doppelganger eyes that we saw in the finale, where the doppelgangers had sort of lighted over blue eyes, uh, right. as opposed to the regular people. This Leland Palmer does not have the doppelganger eyes. And he says in reverse speak, find Laura. And now Dale is following the scratching sounds through the curtains. The floor and the curtains get unstable. Mike is in front of the arm tree and says something wrong. And then the tree says, my doppelganger. Well, this is really interesting because, you know, you get kind of the impression that the arm had been the evil part of Mike that he cut off. That Mike had been in league with Bob and they would hunt together. Then Mike famously saw the eyes of God and cut the arm clean off. And so, as I recall from the original series of Firewalk with Me, uh, there's a sort of shadier quality to the arm. So I'm kind of fascinated at this idea that the arm, who has now evolved into the brain tree, has itself a doppelganger and how that works. You guys, you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, it all seems so strange when you put it that way. <laughs> And that, yeah, I mean, it, it falls in, I don't know, like, I think with so much of Lynch's work, these things sound absurd. You know, if you try to explain what Garmin Bozzi is or who the people above the convenience store is, like sometimes, but if you've seen the film, it, it, it operates on some intuitive, you know, logic or dream logic sometimes that, yeah, it's, but, and you're right, as, as Cal said, if you put it that way, it sounds absurd, but watching it, I was like, okay, it makes sense to, you know, the evolution of the arm and then the tree itself has a doppelganger and then it sends cooper into the glass box it made sense <laughs> so, yeah Ben horn has evolved so so maybe the you know the <laughs> arm can evolve into a tree and be a good guy and, uh, right. I'll, I'll and then, but then he's got a doppelganger so right so so what cool good deal he, he opens up the curtains and he, he now sees bad coop driving his lincoln down the highway uh, when he opens up the curtains, time, there, which is which is which is something right. <laughs> and that and you see Bad Coop looking at his watch, and he drives underneath where Goodale is in the Red Lodge. And then the doppelganger, the evil brain tree evolution of the arm, appears, and it is pissed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this doppelganger tree is really upset. Uh, the floor starts shifting. The chevron pattern emerges, up and you know, pushes up and down the black and the white. And then the doppelganger, this kind of a sort of 
nominalization of the standard uh, Dalek exterminate instead of saying exterminate, it just gets right to the point and says non-existent, and uh, and then Good Dale falls into the stars. So this is normal. This is this is what we're used to seeing. He falls down through the stars in space. And now he lands on a glass box outside of the building in New York. Uh, this is interesting because we didn't know in all the previous scenes inside the building that there was a glass box both outside and inside the wall, right? It looked originally like there was just a portal and something could fly in through the portal and then come in through the box, whereas, in fact, there's a box on the outside, which makes it look, I don't know, like more like some sort of science experiment for some reason that... You know, something gets caught in the box and then it gets sucked in through the, through the portal into the box on the inside of the building. And then somehow Dale fades through the glass uh, and then is sucked in sort of floating at an angle like we saw in the finale of season two. And this, we find out, is at the exact same moment that Sam is looking for a guard in the bathroom. And then the box which is inside the building where Dale is now floating rumbles and there's a sort of like iterative boxing in and out and in and out of Dale. And then he fades away and he's falling again. And for me, that was, you know, I think so much of the power of Lynch's work is just these images, you know, uh, yeah. that, that reg- register on lots of different levels. And for me, the image of Cooper floating in the box that for me was like the one that was sort of for episodes one and two and kind of like, you know, a payoff at the end of the episode for, you know, uh, that long sequence, you know, with Sam and, uh, already for Tracy, I think, you know, at the beginning of episode one, but, uh, I, I that was amazing. And it almost felt to me like very, all right, this is new kind of twin peaks, you know, uh, right. and, and a distinct thing from, uh, the original series. But for me, that was, that was the most powerful evocative image. Um, in the in the first two episodes, uh, I I liked your summary of the iterations of the frame that Cooper is in within the box. It reminded me of when old timey cameras used uh, that reactive powder to take images. Would have the long lenses that you could extend your sort of zoom by having this yeah. accordion file looking lens on the end of it. Uh, which kind of goes back to Kyle's earlier point about the meta nature of the glass box to me, uh, which is which is super, super cool. Uh, I, I'm also fascinated by this idea that things are somehow going wrong in the Red Room or the other place. Like, I always assumed this mythology worked in the old series. Like, there are layers to the metaphysical universe that we don't really understand as humans who only exist on one plane. And those layers have their own rules and their own customs and things just go a certain way. And so I just thought that the traffic between the two worlds was standardized. And, you know, sometimes something like Bob uh, was sent over here and something like Mike went that way and, you know, Laura could end up there. But that all of this ran more or less like clockwork when you watch the stuff going on with the red room in episode in episode two it seems like all the stuff with cooper and bob and mike is really really taxing on this place and it's like not equipped to deal with any of this madness which is very surprising i guess what i'm saying is i demand a better administrative uh organization from my uh otherworldly astral plane like areas so you want bob to be more like mussolini and make the train or the venus de milo statue or the evolved armor whoever's in charge over there sure sure 
The, well, the interesting thing to me about your description there, Jr., with with the framing is, you know, when you say see say the word frame, and you're you're talking about uh, that in the context of Twin Peaks, uh, after we discussed previously the you know the importance of Fire Walk with Me, of course you have to think about the the frame picture in in Laura Palmer's room with the uh, with the door being open and being closed, and and here we have Cooper in a frame trying to get through a door that may be open and may be closed. Yeah, and. I, I guess, Ken, my sense is that, you know, maybe one of the, yeah, that, that I guess Doppel Cooper is trying to mess with those, I guess, more standardized uh, ingress and egress, you know, in, into between these, these places. And maybe that's what's and, and along with whoever is the anonymous billionaire uh, funding this kind of thing, that there are people trying to interfere with these mechanisms. And so I, you know, one intuition I kind of had is that, why things feel so off in terms of our expectations for Twin Peaks or what's going on, you know, kind of in the rest of this world is that on some level, the interference of these kind of mechanisms or the long kind of uninterfered with, I guess, existence of kind of something, an entity like Evil Cooper in the world for 25 years, it's had some sort of larger, you know, kind of like ripple effect on on the layers of reality, physical reality, as well as metaphysical. I like reality. that. So, yeah. And this isn't the first time we've seen interlopers. I mean, Wyndham Earl also tried to kind of bend the rules and find his way into the Black Lodge that we don't really know enough of his backstory to see how prepared he was to be there. But Bob was pretty clear about uh, Wyndham's authority to call the shots in, in the finale, right? Yeah, yeah, he was totally, yeah, w- Wyndham Earl totally unprepared for the Black Lodge, right? But it does look like we've got actors now who know a little bit more than he did, namely Bad Coop yeah. and possibly the billionaire. Um, and then after seeing... After seeing the sequence too, I, I did wonder if Cooper's, you know, showing up and then disappearing sort of cleared a path for whatever the thing was that killed Sam and Tracy, uh, you yeah. know, in the kind of time loop here. This That takes place right after Coop has right. been sucked back out of the glass box. And I sort of felt like his appearance allowed for that other entity to appear and perhaps escape and, you know, kill uh, Sam and Tracy there. So, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Or maybe that entity was following Coop for whatever reason, right? And then just right. took a took a took a break for a snack uh, on Sam and Tracy. Yeah, that that was a little closer to the way I, I saw it. That it was like this was a means for Cooper, hopefully, to get out, and and some some force pulled him back in, uh, and then this this other thing shows up and then destroys the glass box. I mean, that to me is the critical part: is that it shatters the glass box, presumably preventing that doorway from being used by anyone else. You know, and another thing that we hadn't talked about, but I've seen sort of flying around a bit is that it may be that Laura, the evil Laura, maybe uh, is, is figuring much more heavily in this plot than we realize that she may be some kind of avenging angel um, who is, you know, behind all of this uh, in terms of, of, seeking vengeance on the world that did this to her. And, you know, when she flies away from the Black Lodge, like she could be the spectral entity that appears in the box. She could be... And that's really... I was going to say, that's really scary because sort of screaming evil Laura Palmer is one of the scariest things yes. in the final episode. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right, so, so, and then, you know, we're, we can round up this episode with... Uh, a short scene that shows Sarah Palmer, who obviously is not doing very well, um, kind of surrounded by vodka bottles and ashtrays, 
and she's watching on, on we note, a very large flat screen television, uh, a, a documentary where she watches water buffalo, or a water buffalo being gruesomely eaten by lions, and we hear some kind of black lodge noises. I was going to nominate it as actually the scariest thing that happens in either of the first two episodes. I mean, poor, poor Grace and Christie having to play this character. I mean, every time we go back to Twin Peaks, everybody is is very old and depressing. But here, Sarah Palmer is still chain smoking. There's one million cigarette butts in the various ashtrays, and she just looks so miserable. And I mean, she does seem to be relishing the uh, footage of the animal carnage, but that doesn't make me feel any better. It's it's so depressing and disturbing. Has, has anyone seen there's like a special feature on like the Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. It was like one of the new things made for like the, the Blu-ray release where I can't remember which other um, actors, but it's Lynch talking to, I remember Grace Zabriskie's and maybe Ray Wise was in it, but he, that's right. Uh, and maybe Cheryl Lee. Yeah. But then I, I remember, and he was like, all right, so, and this was before they'd announced, you know, that there was going to be more twin peaks, but he was like, okay, so Grace, what do you think Sarah Palmer's life would be like? And I just remember hers was was really terrifying and just sort of depressing and just this really intense performance like that seemed improvised and you know by uh, Grace Zabriskie meditating on like what Laura, uh, Sarah Palmer's life would have been like in the future and it was uh, it, this seemed <laughs> I wonder how much this came from Lynch and how much this just came from Grace Zabriskie but yeah I it, it it reminded me a lot of of that that's super interesting and it reminds me of. Uh, how much I liked and was uh, disturbed by her performance in Big Love. Her and uh, Harry Dean are both in Big Love and are both like really terrifying. And then we go to the Roadhouse. That's right. And uh, we see the band Chromatics on stage playing a song Shadow. We see Shelly doing tequila shots at a booth with her girlfriends. James enters with a, a young guy whose name we know from the cast list is Freddie Sykes. Uh, they get beers. Shelly says to her girlfriends that her daughter is with the wrong guy. And one of the girlfriends protests and says, everybody loves Stephen. James is, looks kind of longingly at Shelly. The girlfriends notice that James is giving Shelly the eye. And Shelly says that he was in a motorcycle accident and is just quiet now. Whereas before, you know, he was... Also seemed like he'd been in a motorcycle accident, but <laughs> spoke up more often. I don't know. Uh, but then he didn't. Though. <laughs> well, he, he's talked a little bit. I mean, the turkey is one of the dumbest animals there is. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then Shelly, you know, notes that 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 James is he's he's always been cool. And then Balthazar Getty playing a character credited as having the name Red, uh, he kind of notes Shelley from across the room. Uh, and that's that's the end, end, of, end of episode two. And the end of the first two hours of our experience of Twin Peaks to Return. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, but I want to note, what we see a lot less of in the new show is the Angelo Bolomenti soundtrack. We see a lot more of what's credited as David Lynch's sound design, which I just want to say is fantastic. Uh, really, really, really well done in terms of you know actively functioning as a, almost a character yes. in the show uh, and really messing with your mind and being almost sort of painful and difficult, uh, but really like ultimately enhancing the experience of the show. 
this is my somewhat contrarian perspective. I can't believe how much I miss the Bottle of Menti music. I can't believe how much I miss being triggered by whatever soap opera responsive part of my brain is there to know that like quirkiness is afoot. Like I, I miss it. It's it's terrible. Um, I I like the Lynch sound design for what it is. I agree. It is, it is really successful at being sort of terrifying and creating this incredible mood. It's very, very effective for what Lynch wants to do. But what Lynch wants to do is very far from, in many cases, the mood of the original to me. So I, I'm amazed how much the Bottle of Menti music was a, was a part of that. Yeah, and, and that's really where, where I think you see the, the biggest difference because you're, you're much more aware of those long, awkward silences yeah. when there's nothing but silence there. And, and you notice it, to me, in this final scene because you've got uh, chromatics up there singing, but you know, you're, you're getting a very Julie Cruz-like performance out of their lead singer. And, and this scene, as much as any in the first two hours— sounds totally. like Twin Peaks more than any other part of it. And, and that, along with the, you know, the warm, comforting earth tones uh, of the sheriff's station, is, is what's really different about these first two hours. It, it's not just that it looks different. It's not just that it feels different. It sounds different from Twin Peaks. There's not always music in the air. Right, right. And I have nothing to support this with, but I do kind of suspect, you know, that, you know, I sort of feel like we're in the, you know, the far... Uh, you know, uh, far flung reaches of this kind of galaxy and will kind of spiral and center back in towards Twin Peaks toward the end of it. Again, I have no idea if this will actually be the case, but I wonder if there will be a gradual reintroduction of more jazzy battle of Menti type music as we get closer and closer to Twin Peaks. But who knows? You know, I also this I agree that this was kind of the most nostalgic, you know, one, one of one of the most nostalgic. And uh, for me, I don't hate James Hurley as much as everyone else does. That's probably the most contrarian thing Whoa. I could say on this podcast. Um, and I, I mean, I agree. He does get saddled with the worst of the kind of subplots in kind of season two and the kind of noir. Uh, I would agree with you guys with that. I don't mind him as much in the first season or so. And weirdly enough, rewatching a lot of Twin Peaks and, you know, in, in the last uh, few weeks, all the stuff with a kind of, Josie and the Packard Mill and all that kind of side of things was just, I did not care about it at all. It was really boring. And I actually didn't mind some of the scenes between um, James and Maddie and, and Don. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I It didn't bother me as much. And actually, again, as we're talking about with the characterization of kind of Jacoby and Ben Horn, like the kind of sense we got of James and the sense we got of kind of Shelly in this scene felt to me realistic. Um, and I did find something a little bit poignant about the distance between them, the affection between them, and I guess also returning to the roadhouse and having, as you said, a very uh, Lynchian, you know, kind of Twin Peaks type uh, band and music playing in the air in the scene. So there you go. That's all. I don't hate Hurley as much as everyone else and, does. But it's funny, though, in terms of nostalgia, because in the original show, James had nothing to do with Shelby. Shelley. Like, I'm not sure they even exchanged any lines. Right. <laughs> so, right. It, but it might just be the sense that I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, it, it just might, yeah, you're right. But then also it, they were part of this time and place. And then the, it doesn't seem like maybe they have connection with anybody else who is there in that time and place. So, yeah, I, do, I still wonder who Shelly's, uh, what, what Shelly and Bobby's relationship is. Yeah, so, well, yeah. We're, I, we can look forward to it. We're going to find out. Yeah. I like the pairing of uh, of Shelley and, and James Hurley as adults. I think it could be cool to explore that. Uh, I, I kind of liked uh, her making this remark about him because they weren't really ever coupled up in some 
Degrassi sort of way in the uh, right. in the original. This this was definitely the most Degrassi the Next Generation uh, scene. <laughs> sure, and I, uh, I I love it for that. I just have three beverage related comments. If people uh, want to hear those before we wrap up, sure. Beverages are incredibly important to the world of Twin Peaks, so you have to go ahead. I think so, and it's, it's my area of expertise. Okay, so first of all, I strongly believe that uh, evil Dale Cooper should not be allowed to drink coffee in any scene at all. And when I saw him drinking coffee in the diner with uh, the, the dude who eats three meals and is doomed, uh, and with Ray and uh, Daria, it was very disturbing to me. Because I, I'd like to believe that he gave up coffee completely, uh, because it's the symbol of all things that are good in this universe. Uh, secondly, I don't think any Renault should be allowed to 10 bar on either side of the border anywhere near <laughs> Twin Peaks or maybe in any <laughs> country anywhere on yes, Earth. I mean, absolutely. maybe like in a prison colony somewhere, but it's really, really upsetting that there is this Jean-Michel Renault and that they dragged uh, Walter Okowitz back. Well, probably not dragged. He was probably happy to do it, but. It's just further evidence that if Lynch likes you and wants to put you in the show, the fact that your character is deceased is in no way an, uh, an obstacle. The fact that you're deceased is maybe not an obstacle at all. And here's you know Joan Chen begging him to find something to do with her. And the poor uh, Michael J. Anderson saying, like, can, can you get us into this thing? And he's like, no, no, can't do it. Uh, so, yeah, so no more Renaults is my, my theory. And, and third of all, I don't mind Shelly. It looks like Shelly is chasing her shot of tequila with a Rainier, uh, which is a totally respectable choice. Um, though Rainier is, of course, uh, nowhere near as good as it used to be. But I don't understand the pairing of tequila shots and red wine, which the other three seem to be doing. It seems like red wine is an awfully odd chaser. For, uh, this has been Ken's Beverage Corner. And I would just follow up on the, on the that first point about uh, about Evil Cooper, I, I noticed that as well, and I just assumed that Evil Cooper drank decaf. <laughs> that's in terms that's of coffee, Kyla. I just I can't wait till you see episode four. That's all I'm going to say. So one of the one of the great coffee moments right. in Twin Peaks. That's all I'm going to say. I, I was I was curious. About, you know, you talk about like Joan Chin and Michael J. Anderson. It feels like if you say you're not going to work with with David Lynch, he. <laughs> He, he gets his revenge on you if you purposely because isn't that the reason didn't Joan Chen say she was you know chose to work on something else and asked for her character to be killed off in episode two and now she's begging to come back I don't know so well she and the American people demand yeah, her yeah. character be killed I think we're I think we're done with episode two this has been a lot of fun thanks to Kyle and Ken and our new contributor Jeff for t- participating it's been kind of a slog to get through. Uh, so many episodes in such a short period of time we still have three and four to do but we're going to do them we're going to have a lot of fun and then we're going to go to a more leisurely pace of one episode a week in the meantime i hope you guys have uh, a great week and uh thanks again for tuning into wrapped in podcasts